break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 20th of July, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, and we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about Ghana, where there are major protests happening against a potential deal with the IMF. But before we get to that very important story, we want to start with the ongoing turmoil on the island of Haiti. On July 15th, the United Nations Security Council renewed for one year, the mandate of the United Nations Integrated Office in Haiti, known by the acronym BINUH. The extension came after a somewhat contentious debate over what the future of the 42-person office should be amidst growing turmoil and hardship in Haiti. The UN office is the legal extension of the former UN occupation of Haiti that controlled that country from 2004 to 2017. So after that was over, they set up this office to continue at least some of the alleged support roles. The UN plays something of a coordinating role for the so-called international community alongside the quote-unquote core group, which is a group made up of North American and European countries. And these two international entities more or less control Haiti, picking the winners and losers in the political process and also coordinating the flow of various forms of aid and cash. In the lead-up to the Security Council meeting, 30 progressive groups in Haiti had been campaigning to get China and Russia to try to stop the extension of the office, arguing that it was not serving a positive function, but was in fact undermining Haitian sovereignty and working directly with many of the forces most responsible for Haiti's current social and economic crisis. Ultimately, the U.S. and China came to an agreement to extend for a year, as opposed to the 15 months proposed by the U.S. and Mexico. The extension of the office came at a time where a number of herring reports have been coming out of Haiti, speaking to the depths of the challenges taking place there. At least 934 people have been killed so far this year in violence between non-state armed groups. The police themselves also continue to be deeply repressive, and the number of kidnappings continues to be very high. One million people in the capital of Port-au-Prince alone are food insecure, and that number seems set to grow around the country as well, as the clashes between armed groups have also disrupted the flow of people and goods on roads and highways. The World Food Program has noted that it is struggling to reach millions of people with food aid due to those circumstances. The normal flow of education has also been disrupted. 1,700 schools in the capital are closed, and almost 500,000 students there are out of school, which only further compounds the crisis of education in Haiti, where roughly 80% of all schools are private, and access to education is thus heavily limited by cost. Further deepening the crisis, Caracol Industrial Park, the center of the sweatshop factory regime that reigns in Haiti's industrial sector, is laying off a number of workers, as many as 4,000 in fact. The renewal of the mandate of the UN office ultimately reflects the lack of any real will from the so-called international community to address the root causes of Haiti's problems and instead to seek solutions that are as much band-aids as anything else. 
Haiti is currently governed by a de facto prime minister, Dr. Ariel Henry. Dr. Henry was installed at the behest of the United States last year after his predecessor, the unconstitutional de facto president, was murdered, some say with the complicity of Henry. In installing him as Haiti's leader, the U.S. was following its usual playbook of developing a coalition of Haitian political and business elites to govern the country with very little popular support to maintain the very pro-Western economic setup, which is focused on sweatshop labor, mining, and export plantation agriculture. It's also worth noting that Henri's government is closely linked, at least it seems, through the publicly available information to many of the non-state armed groups that are creating the insecurity that is making headlines about Haiti around the world. The problem for the United States and its allies in the core group and the regional and international countries that are going along with the neo-colonial setup is that these sorts of so-called governments of political and business elites that are governing the country on behalf of these foreign powers are in and of themselves the problem. For decades, they have presided over the looting of Haiti and the destruction of state capacity in the public sector that is the root of the poverty, inequality, and insecurity that is present today. To address these root causes, however, major Western powers would have to give up their lucrative exploitation of Haiti, something they have refused to do for decades, even mounting two coups over the past 32 years to remove the pro-poor president Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who won elections with wide support among the popular masses twice, once in the 90s, another in the early 2000s. So currently, there is a huge amount of political maneuvering going on in an attempt to maintain the neocolonial status quo, which needs at least a modicum of quote-unquote normalcy to work. That does not exist currently, and it also needs a modicum of support from the Haitian people, which doesn't really exist currently either. Henri is currently in the pole position, if you will, with the support of the United States, the single most powerful player. He has created a coalition with the backing of a subset of oligarchs and some elements that were part of the massive protest movement that nearly ousted the past now assassinated president. And this was last year. There's also a civil society coalition known as the Montana Accord, which has united a wide range of political, social, and religious groups who have some limited support in the U.S. Congress and a few other international supporters. And then there is Fanmi Lavalas, the party of former President Aristide, diminished from its heyday but still a notable social force. All three of these forces are vying to oversee what the core group in the U.N. Security Council seem to want most, a so-called transition to elections in the next year or so. Ultimately, this will just paper over all the problems because there isn't even a truly legitimate electoral authority. So any election that comes in the near future is likely to be a bit of a stitch up, which undoubtedly is what the U.S. and others want, something that looks good enough to say they're supporting democracy, but that makes it easy enough to install yet another coalition of elites in league with powerful capitalist forces to make sure nothing truly changes in Haiti. Poverty, inequality, and insecurity will continue to rule the day. The 30 organizations we mentioned earlier that oppose the extension of the U.N. office's mandate represent a small but intrepid group of popular forces that tend to lean left who are seeking to promote a different path and have been for the last couple years and themselves played a major part in the mass protest movement. They're looking to enact changes that would seriously address the neo-colonial, neoliberal reality of the country. But as our discussion here today must indicate, it's a difficult path. So for the near future, it seems the people of Haiti are set to continue to suffer as powerful forces try to manipulate the reality around them.
Large protests have rocked Ghana this month as youth organizations, trade unions, and socialist organizations are rising up against the Ghanaian government's negotiations with the International Monetary Fund for a loan that seems destined to bring austerity measures that will even further tighten the screws on working-class people suffering from inflation and inequality. The protests have been met with serious police brutality and were broken up with tear gas and water cannons. Since 1971, successive Ghanaian governments have consistently borrowed from the IMF under the guise of getting economic assistance aimed at development, but in reality promoting painful policies that hurt the majority of people. As news site People's Dispatch details, the last IMF deal, signed in 2015, required the Ghanaian government to impose, quote, reforms including cuts on energy subsidies, a 17% hike in fuel prices, and a freeze on jobs in the public sector. The nominal increase in the total wage bill was also restrained to 10%, end quote. A similar sort of deal now would only compound the current economic crisis, which is quite dire, as People's Dispatch also notes, quote, official figures show that the inflation rate in Ghana hit 29.8% in June, the highest since 2004. The price of food has shot up 30.7% over the past year, with inflation of 59.3% in the price of vegetable oil and 65% in wheat flour. Housing, which includes electricity, water, and gas, has registered an inflation of 38.4%, and commuters are paying over 40% more for transport, with an inflation of 99.7% in diesel prices and 69.4% for petrol. End quote. In addition to the IMF deal, the Ghanaian government has also recently imposed a tax on electronic transactions that most affects lower-income populations and small businesses. The Trade Union Congress of Ghana has been noting that the last IMF deal also kept Ghana locked into an export-based economy that benefits primarily multinational corporations. As they said in one statement, quote, What we got in return for the IMF deal was an economy still overly dependent on production and export of raw materials and import of manufactured products. Most of our productive sectors, such as mining, petroleum, and telecommunications, are still being controlled by foreign companies, end quote. And this is something that's certainly underlined by the fact, as also reported by People's Dispatch, that despite the fact Ghana is one of the world's largest exporters of gold, a report by the Bank of Ghana found less than 1.7% of the returns from gold made it back to the government between 1990 and 2002. The government received only 87.3 million United States dollars from $5.2 billion worth of gold produced. $5.2 billion worth of gold, Ghana only got 87.3 million. Kwesi Pratt Jr., General Secretary of the Socialist Movement of Ghana, has noted that the IMF is also behind the long-term devaluation of the Ghanaian SETI, that's the Ghanaian currency, and the privatization of over 300 factories, almost all of which are now failed businesses. It's not hard to see why people are protesting then, and social movements and unions are vowing to continue to keep up the pressure, and also making it clear that the only thing that can help Ghana is a serious change in the way the country's economy is organized. The Trade Union Congress and the Socialist Movement of Ghana are focused specifically on moving away from export-based extractive industries and ending foreign domination of the most profitable sectors of the economy so that more resources are made available to expand the healthcare and education sector. So it seems Ghana, like many other countries, including Panama, which we mentioned yesterday, is rising in response to the increasing challenges facing working-class people around the world as inflation, inequality, and poverty, as well as hunger, continue to increase. That's the punch out for today. 
We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthroughnews. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 